0: Hello! Welcome to Foss and Crafts,
1: a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together.
0: With my co-host Morgan.
1: And my co-host Chris. Well, so we just heard that intro music again.
0: Yes, we did just hear that intro music again. I feel kind of off and on about it, to be honest.
1: I like it.
0: Well, yeah, so... I feel awkward about it mainly because I made it, but I also feel like it's kind of amateurish in some ways.
1: Well, we when we first started talking about this podcast, we were considering commissioning a composer to write a theme song for us.
0: Right. And initially I even made a sketch for it and then kind of... Progressively built up some more examples until we actually ended up with what is the intro to our show. And eventually, I guess we decided to settle on keeping it.
1: And part of the reason why we kept the version that Chris made was because we thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about how we go about learning.
0: Yeah, so both of us have background as in terms of learning music growing up as part of our family. So, my dad and my stepmom are both folk musicians, and I grew up going to the Milwaukee Coffee House and hearing them and other musicians play while I converted what was theoretically a bottomless cup of coffee into a bottomless cup of hot chocolate instead.
1: And my mom initially was pursuing a degree in opera singing in college and took many college level courses on opera. Um, She did not end up becoming a professional opera singer. However, she always loved to sing and was always involved in the choir at church when we were growing up. So I also was raised in a very musical household.
0: So we both definitely think our parents supported us and worked very hard to invest time and money into our music education. But nonetheless, it kind of felt like things didn't stick far enough for it to last into adulthood.
1: Yeah, so we're just going to give a brief outline of our musical education. So between second grade and eighth grade at various times, and sometimes concurrently, I played the violin, the recorder, the flute, the piano, and I was also in choir.
0: Yeah, so I took about eight years of piano, and in all that time, I... Well, I only got to about kind of badly playing The Entertainer, which is a famous Scott Joplin piece, but which I mostly think of as being the ice cream truck song. You know, basically that one, right? So um, I also took drums for about a year. And around that time, uh, myself and some of my friends thought that we were going to form a great 90s grunge band for all of about one and a half practice sessions before we just lost interest. But definitely most of my time was spent on the piano.
1: So given all of those years of music lessons, why didn't it stick?
0: So I think the first thing was both of us have very strong cases of ADD, and we were both overwhelmed by homework, and practice in some ways kind of felt like more homework on top of an already stressful pile.
1: And I'm also dyslexic, so reading sheet music was very difficult, and I frequently transposed notes, which my music instructors did not appreciate.
0: Also, I really enjoyed composing songs on the fly, but teachers discouraged composition over getting the fundamentals down, but I never really seemed to be very good at that. I had trouble finding the notes live, and I really struggled with reading sheet music in a way that was sufficiently performative.
1: Yeah. So now as adults and after years and years of music lessons, neither of us can read sheet music.
0: So part of the reason I think I made progress this time is because in tracker software, it doesn't look like classical notation of the circles being on bars and et cetera, and having to interpret that in real time. Notes are written as C1, you know, F2, et cetera. So my anxiety over needing to live interpret notes wasn't there because I could just kind of futz with things more slowly.
1: Do you think that any of those previous lessons, though, helped when you picked it up again?
0: Yes. So I think a bunch of that experience with dynamically experimenting with music came back to me. It was helpful to remember about things like chords. But in other ways, it did feel kind of like starting over again after 20 years.
1: So we talked about this episode being an example, not just of how to make music using a music tracker, but kind of an example of what the process is like for picking up a new or even revived craft. Can you give us your progression of learning things?
0: Yeah, so when we were talking about commissioning the piece, we were throwing around some ideas.
1: I remember you made a voice recording of what you thought it could sound like.
0: Yes, I did make that. The idea was maybe it could resemble someone being kind of silly, but also stuffy and full of themselves in the piece, kind of a self-parody of doing crafty as a high art in the first place, maybe to put on a harpsichord or something like that.
1: So, do you still have that recording?
0: I do still have that recording, but it is kind of embarrassing.
1: Well, I think we should play it anyways. This is a show about the process of picking up something new, so it's okay for it to be raw or even a bit awkward.
0: Okay. Yeah, so I was too embarrassed to send that in.
1: Well, I didn't think it was too embarrassing, but then again, it wasn't my voice.
0: Yeah, so it's still embarrassing for me, but this is kind of how I end up making many projects. With drawing and painting, I always start with a sketch before I try to move on to a more complicated version of that image, and even in programming, I always try to build up the ideas of what I want to do at the REPL or Interpreter first before I go on to build a more complicated program.
1: So at that point, were you thinking of trying to use this as an opportunity to compose the song for yourself, then starting with this sketch?
0: Well, I was more thinking that I was going to send this off to someone who actually knows what they're doing, but in order to do so, it would be nice if I could actually lay it out with something that had the actual notes in place that hopefully they would be using as opposed to just awkwardly my voice.
1: So is that when you started looking at Milky Tracker?
0: Nope. That's when I started thinking about, I don't even understand how sound works. And so that got me to remember a program called SFXer.
1: So what's that?
0: SFXer is a sound effect generation tool to create the kind of sounds you'd hear on an old Nintendo or Game Boy or other 8-bit system. It's free software, included in a bunch of GNU Linux systems, and it's a nice tool for experimenting with sounds.
1: So maybe we should pull it up and take a look at it.
0: Good idea. Alright, we've got SFX are open. Um so on the left hand side it's got these various things that say generators. Um so I'm gonna try the pickup and coin thing. If I press it once, so that made a little quick noise, and if I play it uh if I press it a couple more times, you can see it's generating different procedural sounds uh that might be used in kind of a pickup and or coin noise in a video game, of course. Um, And it's got some other utilities that you might want to use, like here's a few laser sounds. It's got all these different sliders. So, for example, if I move the uh, slide slider all the way to the right, let's see what it does. Okay, so that made kind of a a chirpy noise. And you you can switch a bunch of these things. Here's maybe the phaser sweep, and we'll move down that slide again. So yeah, you can mess around with these things and get different noises. It's also got explosions and power-ups, here's hit and hurt noises, here's some jump noises, and here's some kind of menu select and blip noises. Yep, okay, you get the idea. Yep, so that's SFXer.
1: So, but what does this have to do with composing music? That's all just a bunch of blips and bloops.
0: So here I was just thinking about how sounds work, but I remembered that the SFXer author made an article about sound theory.
1: Do you want to walk through some of the different ideas in that article?
0: Yeah, so the first question is, what is sound? Basically, it's vibrations of air being perceived by your ear.
1: Is that where the whole in space, no one can hear you scream trope comes from?
0: Yes, because the sound waves don't have an atmosphere of air that's going to get to your ear so that vibration isn't going to hit it.
1: So what accounts then for different kinds of noise?
0: So sound waves can have different heights of how up, far up and down they're moving. And that changes volume level generally. And then there's also how far apart the different waves are. Which kind of affects different tones. So, kind of, you can think up and down on this little waveform and then side to side. And there's kind of different shapes to waves that make different kinds of noise.
1: Why don't you explain some of the different kinds of shapes and the kinds of waveforms that they produce?
0: So, here are some of the common ones that are easy to make on a computer and sometimes appeared on old, for example, 8 bit computer chips. If the top of our wave is one and the bottom is zero, we can make a really easy waveform by just switching between zero, one, zero, and one. And that's called a square wave. And I'm going to play it right here.
1: That sounds very computery. And it looks like it's shaped like a square, too. Good name.
0: So that nice round-peaked version of a wave we're used to seeing on graphs and so on is called a sine wave. And it sounds like this.
1: That sounds very pure.
0: Yeah, it it is a very pure tone. You know, you might want to have that kind of sine wave available, but it's expensive to make those smooth curves math-wise. So old computers frequently cheated And they just did something called a triangle wave. So instead of the smooth peaks, it went from the top of one peak and then just a line moving down to the bottom of the next peak, which results in a zigzag. And the noise that that makes is kind of like this.
1: Similar, but also more computery?
0: Yeah, kind of somewhere between a sine wave and a square wave, I guess you could say, in flavor. So another easy wave to make is to just take that triangle wave and just cut it in half. You move smoothly up from zero to one, but then when you get to one, you just jump right down to zero, which we call a sawtooth based off of it looking like a saw. And it sounds like this.
1: Definitely harsher.
0: Yep. And finally, we could just insert a bunch of random values, and that's called noise.
1: Ugh, it's so staticky.
0: Right, so that's good for explosions or drums or so on.
1: So that explains how to make some basic noises and notes and sound effects, but when are we going to get to how to make music?
0: Well, the author of this article and SFXer also wrote a tutorial about making music in a FOSS music program they wrote called Musagi. And I thought, maybe this is a music program for me. But I didn't really succeed in being able to compile or even run the program, so I needed to move on to something else.
1: And presumably, that's when you decided to look at Milky Tracker?
0: Yes. So I remember looking at the program several years ago and trying to make a few experiments, but not getting very far. And I thought, you know, maybe I should just look at that again. And maybe if I spend enough time, it'll be easier for me to use a program like this because I can take my time experimenting with the music. And since it's fairly old school, maybe that kind of simplification that I thought might be there might maybe make it easier for me.
1: So what is Milky Tracker?
0: So Milky Tracker is a free and open source software music tracker released under GPLv3.
1: A music tracker? What is that?
0: So there's a lot of history of tracker music, and we're not going to get into all of it. There's a fun podcast called Impulse Project that goes into both tracker music, chiptunes, and their mutual connection to the demo scene, and we'll link to that in the show notes.
1: Wait, you said... Tracker music, chip tunes, and the demo scene. I think we need to slow down and define each of those individually, because I don't know what you're talking about.
0: Sure. Why don't we start out with a demo scene, because it has kind of an interesting tangential relationship to this show in that it was about sharing software. Except, unlike FOSS, here it wasn't legally permitted to share that software. The demo in the demo scene is because in the 1980s there was a tension between proprietary game publishers who wanted to put out anti-copying or DRM stuff on their games or other software, and software crackers who wanted to share that software and saw cracking the DRM as a challenge. So crackers of games started putting in intros to their software that would brag and shout out to their friends, and over time, these demos started to include advanced graphical effects and music to show off just how well the crackers understood how to make this machine do new and interesting things. Eventually, these became sophisticated enough that people started hosting demo scene parties that were more and more focused on these demos uh, and showing off how they pushed the limits of the computers than they were about sharing the cracked software.
1: Okay, that makes sense. And presumably, both chiptunes and tracker music were featured there. Now, what's the difference between chiptunes and tracker music?
0: Chiptunes, if we're talking historically, refers to 8-bit music. Back on 8-bit computers, computers came with some kind of chip for playing sound and music, but usually could only play a few kinds of built-in sounds. Usually square waves, triangle waves, sawtooth, and noise. Usually these chips had multiple channels, between one and four of them generally, and you could only play one sound on each channel at a time.
1: So basically, like being able to play between one and four instruments at a time. Got it.
0: Exactly. And to mix it up a little, you could sometimes play special effects on them. For example, the use of what's called the arpeggio effect is famous on the Commodore 64. You might recognize the sound for it being kind of like this. The reason that distinct sound exists is originally to get around a limitation. So, for example, on the Commodore 64, Since you only have three channels, you can't simultaneously do a chord, a bass line, and a drum noise, because the chord would take up all three. So the way the arpeggio effect worked is that it played three notes in rapid succession on the same channel, faster than a human could play them on an instrument, and that makes it sound sort of, but not exactly, like a chord.
1: And I'd assume that each of these chips tended to add their own flavor to the music they made.
0: Yes. So, definitely using a fair use excuse here, but here's an example of one of my favorite chip tunes for the Commodore 64, Monty on the Run. And keep in mind, despite everything that's going on here, the musician only has three channels to play instruments on at a time.
1: hurts my head and I kind of hate
0: it. I really love it, but admittedly, this is an acquired taste.
1: So we've talked previously on the podcast about how limitations sometimes lead to workarounds that eventually become styles in their own right. A Commodore 64-style arpeggio is its own distinct sound, and we could even mix that into a modern dance track for some nostalgic chiptunes flavor, for example. That's kind of like when people use sepia tone filters on their digital photographs as a stylistic choice, even though that sepia tone was originally just a limitation of the technology that photographers had to deal with.
0: Right on the mark.
1: So, that covers chiptunes. What about tracker music?
0: Tracker music refers to music made with a specific family of music composition software originating with... Ultimate Sound Tracker on the Commodore Amiga in 1987.
1: Wow, bold that they called the first one Ultimate Sound Tracker, considering that Ultimate means final or last.
0: Yes, and fortunately for us, it wasn't the last one. A whole family of music composition software has followed, most popularly in the 80s and 90s, but there's been a resurgence of these kinds of software and their use because of retro-computing nostalgia. And so it's kind of come back into style to use trackers. But I realize I still haven't answered your question.
1: Meaning, what is a music tracker? You've explained they're a family, but haven't explained what they have in common.
0: So maybe now would be a good time to actually play a demonstration. Morgan and I are going to open up Milky Tracker and play one of my favorite songs called Moments by Mr. Lou. Note that the song is about five minutes long. We're going to play a section of it for you, but we'll link it in the show notes so you can play it yourself in Milky Tracker if you'd like to listen to the whole thing. Anyway, here's a clip. Okay, so Morgan, I think it would be useful for you to describe what you're seeing here in the program.
1: So there are 16 columns on the screen, and it's scrolling upwards. And in each of those columns, there's a combination of alphanumeric codes, I guess. And I am guessing that each of those columns is a different instrument in the composition as a whole. And at the top, you can see the sound waves for each of those columns.
0: Yep. So each one of those columns basically corresponds to one of the channels. So here we're looking at a 16-channel track, which is why there's 16 of them available.
1: Um. So also in those alphanumeric codes, some of them are blue and some of them are green.
0: Yeah. So those blue ones correspond to which instrument is being played. And the green one corresponds to a change in volume of some type.
1: And there are some that have pink letter and then a yellow one next to it.
0: Yeah, so the pink is basically what effect is being applied, and the yellow is a configuration of that effect. So you could, for example, configure one of these notes to be having an arpeggio effect and one of them to be having some sort of slide between different notes and etc. And how is the movement on the page looking, basically?
1: Uh, it's scrolling from the bottom to the top as the music progresses.
0: Yeah, so um, the line is just basically moving around, and each time the line covers one of those notes, it's playing that note or whatever effect is on it, basically. And that's pretty much it. That's most of New Music Trackers in a nutshell. Oh, other than so- this thing.
1: Oh, yeah. And then at the bottom of the screen, there is a music wave that's kind of cycling through from left to right.
0: So that is the sample. So admittedly, this might not be the most representative example of tracker music. Conventionally, tracker music tends to be very fast paced and happy and energetic. And the reason I chose this, though, was that this song was a big deal for me personally, because when I found it on the Milky Tracker website it hit such a chord that I was like, oh my gosh, I have to learn how to make something like this.
1: But it still doesn't explain the difference between chiptunes and tracker music.
0: That's partly because it's vague as to what that difference is, but we can start out with one difference. Most of the time when people say chiptunes, they mean the kinds of 8-bit computer chips that have just a few specific kinds of synthesized sounds. The whole square wave, triangle wave, triangle wave, sawtooth noise kind of stuff. But at the time that Milky Tracker came out, we were in the 16-bit era of computing, and new audio chips could also play samples. Samples? A sample is a brief audio clip used to construct a note of some instrument. And what the tracker does is it scales that sample up and down to the shape of the appropriate note, uh, maybe with some kind of effect.
1: Okay, so I think I get it. The difference between chiptune music and tracker music is that chip tunes mean 8-bit music, which use some basic waveform that the chip generates, such as a square wave or a triangle wave or whatever. But they're limited to those sounds. But tracker music can load in samples, which can be more advanced kinds of noises, like some of the piano chords we heard in that song, for example. Simple chip-generated waveforms for chiptunes versus samples for tracker music. Is that right?
0: So that's completely correct, based on everything I've said so far. But here's the thing. While chiptunes were originally hand-programmed in software source code, tracker software, which came later, is such a good fit for chiptunes that nowadays people writing music for... For example, the chip on the Nintendo Entertainment System will use Tracker software specifically designed for that chip. One popular one for the NES is the Famitracker, which is also free software, but weirdly not available on GNU Linux. Super strange. But also, not only that, many sample-based trackers like MilkyTracker are so inspired by the chiptune eras of computing that they often include old chiptune-style effects such as C64 arpeggios, so that these days the influence kind of flows in both directions.
1: So it's kind of like that sepia filter that we talked about, just working in both directions. Music trackers didn't have to include styles for chiptune sounding effects, but they did anyways because of its influence. And even though chiptunes were originally programmed in source code, once the Tracker interface became available, people started using that to write songs that are even played on 8-bit chips.
0: Yes, though I am deeply sorry for that digression.
1: So, speaking of digressions, we just went deeply into tunes, Tracker music, and the demo scene, but we still haven't covered one of the things that we said we were going to do up top, which is talk about how you started picking up Milky Tracker.
0: Yes, though I think it's worth giving a caveat here that I don't think I'm very good yet,
1: But that's partly why we wanted to talk about it, because it's still a fresh experience for you. Sometimes it's easier to learn the basics from someone who has recently gone through the basics themselves and can still remember those discoveries and frustrations.
0: That's true. Okay, well, I'd say the two main ways I started learning were reading documentation and watching videos.
1: Which documentation specifically did you read?
0: So the Milky Tracker manual is pretty good for what it does. It's very descriptive about its features, but it's definitely a reference manual. It's not really a good tutorial on its own.
1: So did you end up finding any good tutorials? Yes.
0: So there are some directly linked from the Milky Tracker website, which were written in the 90s for Fast Tracker 2, which is what Milky Tracker is a quasi-clone of. These guides are still good today, partly because the software hasn't changed in design too much. Mostly I loaded these up on my phone to scroll through when I got a spare moment or two.
1: And how about videos?
0: So there's a decent series of videos by Brandon Walsh. Each one of these ranges between 15 minutes and half an hour and covers a general topic. So I'd alternate between watching those while sitting at my computer with Milky Tracker open and playing around, and lying in bed before I went to sleep listening to them with my headphones on.
1: Did you use any other resources or references?
0: So I wasn't very solid on music theory, and I'm not convinced it's necessary to know music theory to play around with making music, but there's a whole range on music theory subjects available these days. Um, I started listening to videos about those as well.
1: And how did you start actually composing?
0: So first of all, you have to load in some samples before you can do anything. I first experimented with using the procedural sample generation that Milky Tracker comes with, which, surprise, surprise, are the basic kinds we talked about earlier, sine waves, square waves, triangle waves, sawtooth, and various kinds of random noise. And the first few experiments, I basically just used those as instruments on my own. So this is one of the first pieces I did, which I called Conversations with a Computer.
1: Well, that definitely sounds computery.
0: Yes, and it's also very basic. But I was trying to abstractly tell a story representing a computer booting up, the computer prompting the user, the user entering some command or information on the keyboard, the computer thinking, uh, the computer printing it out, and then the same rinse and repeat between the computer and the user talking to each other. But that was all experiments just using simple waveforms, and it's kind of more along the lines of an abstract art piece than something that really resembles music.
1: Did you do anything with the simple waveforms that did resemble music?
0: Well, I did do one thing that I thought was semi-okay. So this is meant to simulate a kind of haunted house level in a video game, like the ghost house levels in the Mario games. Uh, This one's called Ecto House. So actually, that's ignoring that at the end of the song, there was a more advanced sample, a tiny dollhouse piano I loaded in and found off of freesound.org, which is a really nice commons of instruments and sound effects and basically where I've gotten most of my samples.
1: We are fans of creepy dolls over here.
0: Yes. And that was the first example I got really excited about. And I made a little dollhouse theme like this.
1: Definitely see that playing on a little music box.
0: Yeah. And it was nice to get something even extremely trivial that felt like something someone might call music in some way, shape, or form.
1: And so how do you enter the notes?
0: So Milky Tracker lets you use a computer keyboard kind of like a piano. You can switch between just playing them and then recording them into a column. So I select a sample and then I just kind of play around with it until I find something that's interesting. And then I try to record it and space things out until I think it sounds okay.
1: So could I connect my old Casio keyboard or whatever else I've got laying around instead of using the computer keyboard?
0: Yeah, Milky Trecker includes MIDI in support. So if you have a Casio or Yamaha or whatever synthesizer brand you have laying around, you can just use that instead of plunking around on a QWERTY layout, which is probably not the most optimal.
1: So is that mostly how you learned? Just plunking around on notes until you got something that seemed good?
0: Sort of. The main thing I found I had a problem with is that when I would come up with a tune that I thought sounded nice, I would enter it in, but the timing was all off. And then I'd spend hours and hours just trying to fix up the timing, but for whatever reason, things just weren't aligning with the kind of music that was in my head.
1: So how did you get past that?
0: Well, admittedly, I still don't feel like I'm past that. I'm still really struggling with timing, but I did get better a bit by pulling up some videos showing the visualizations of video game songs I really liked, especially Dark World from A Link to the Past and Aquatic Ambience by David Wise, and trying to see if I can match the timing of those songs inside of Milky Tracker. So doing that, looking at compositions that were familiar and made by people who actually knew what they were doing, helped me kind of figure out some of the mistakes I was making, but I'm still not happy with my ability to get timing down.
1: So now maybe is a good time to turn to the current intro tune for the show.
0: Before we break it down, let's replay the song.
1: I hear that tune and then my brain auto-completes it to hearing you say, Welcome to Foss and Crafts. And I am ready to say a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. Yep. So that's not really like the original sketch you made.
0: And would you believe me if I said the reason for that was that I ended up struggling with the timing on it so much?
1: I really would believe it because I was there after you came downstairs after several hours beating yourself up and saying you were just completely incapable of composing music and that you'd always be completely incapable.
0: Yeah, I did say that. And I do kind of still feel anxious about that. But then I went upstairs and decided to see if I could cut out almost everything from the song, reducing it to its most basic elements.
1: But you also reframed it. The original version was going to be all harpsichord, but you added in a more chiptune-y section as well.
0: Right. I thought, maybe if I can't get down my original tune, maybe I could at least capture its essence and mix with the title of our podcast, Foss and Crafts. So I redid the song with that theme in mind.
1: Yeah, so there's kind of a call and response theme going on here.
0: Exactly. So here's the story of the song. First, we open with a more crafty, which is composed of a harpsichord and a violin, and playing together, this is the call,
1: and then the response is the chip tuny noise that comes after.
0: Yep, just a simple solo square wave response. Call and response,
1: and the next section has the same call and response style.
0: Yes, but it's a little bit different, and here's where I apply the very small amount of music theory I've learned. Both sections are call and response, but altogether the first one is raised as a question.
1: And the second part is an answer.
0: That's right. Call, response, question. Call, response, answer. But they're separate.
1: The final part then brings them together.
0: Yeah, so... It's the harpsichord and the square wave, but it starts out with the square wave louder.
1: But then the harpsichord gets louder.
0: And then it ends with...
1: Both of them have learned to work together. Which is extra fun, because it's like the logo of our show, which combines your ASCII art with my embroidery and joins it into one cohesive piece.
0: Yep, so... Call-response question, call-response answer, and then finally we bring it all together. It is very silly, though.
1: It's whimsical. And demonstrative of the themes of the show.
0: But is it... good? Even here, the transition between the second and third parts of the tune, no matter what I did, I just couldn't get the timing to sound right. It feels amateurish to me.
1: But hey, this show is all about embracing and accepting being an amateur, and any new skill has to start somewhere.
0: That's true. And maybe it's room for improvement. Maybe it'll get better over time?
1: Or maybe we'll just become attached to it being imperfect and weird. Like us. Maybe. Anyway, this feels like a good place to wrap up for this week.
0: Yeah, plus then we get to listen to that wonderful outro music made by someone who actually knows what they're doing.
1: Okay, well, see you next time, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye.
0: Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted
1: by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber.
0: The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show.
1: The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waived into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information.
0: You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts, at octodon.social on twitter as at foss and crafts or you can email us podcast at foss and org.
1: we also have a chat room join our community hash foss and crafts on irc.freenode.net
0: if you'd like to support the show you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c w e b b e r
1: that's it for this week
0: until next time stay
1: free and stay crafty
2: Another visitor, stay a while, stay forever!